Hey, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Scott Linden here. With the season over, uh, lots of reminiscing going on. We're going to cover that in detail in an upcoming podcast, yours as well as mine. But in the meanwhile, we're thinking about two things, puppies and retraining our dogs. We've got an expert on the topics coming up this week on the Upland Nation podcast. Mark Fulmer of Sarah Setter Kennels will be joining me. One of our most popular podcasts last year, I thought it was a good idea to bring him back and and bring us up to speed on what he's doing, but also help us get back into the training mode, no matter how old or young our dog is. We'll also have a new feature, the Upland Nation Glossary. So the next time you're sitting at the tavern and having a conversation, you might be able to inject a new bird dog or bird hunting term or two that could help you, well, become a better hunter, shooter, or dog owner. (sighs) Yeah, it's going to be a fun podcast. I'm looking forward to it. And it's all brought to you by Roughland Performance Kennels, Happy Jack Dog Care Products, Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns from LegacySports.com, Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food, and Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. You know, I've been asking a lot on social media about your um, past season and how it went and some interesting things there as well. In fact, I'll be talking about one of the things, uh, injuries that our dogs sustained and who got lucky and who didn't get lucky coming later in the podcast. But first off, just a quick talk about my last few weeks you know i had high hopes to get down into southeast california and southwest arizona and do a a final hunt down in that country well it went sideways but on the way i did get one morning to hunt in northwest nevada and maybe that was the right thing anyhow because it kind of brought everything from the season full circle almost literally first birds of the season were shot within 50 feet of where i shot the last birds of the season the only difference well the first birds were chuckers on flat ground and i've told you that story before (laughs) i'll never forget that one in the same general area this time we worked pretty darn hard for it flick and i it was cold so all the ground was nice and solid for a change and um didn't find anything doubled back watched a covey of quail fly over a marshy beaver dam area right in there and uh, marked them down pretty well headed in that direction from the downwind side and a few squirted out this way a few squirted out that way well ahead of us but i had my hopes high and flick was working pretty darn well he was kind of narrowing his search you know how that you know the big windshield wiper pattern there i did it right on the microphone you know what i mean gets a little tighter and a little tighter and then he just cat dances up to one little sagebrush and i can see that all from about 40 50 yards away and it looks great but i can't see anything hiding under that little i mean it's a two foot wide by two foot tall bush and it's pretty sparse in there but he is locked up solid you know that look and then he gives me the side eye and says get over here and i'm hustling as best i can 
and uh, get to about where I think I should be, put the gun back together, walk up on that spot. Before I could even kick the bush, a pair of valley quail streaks out straight away from me. Woohoo! Finally, a decent shot. Low, but flick is solid. Hit the right bird, hit the left bird, boom, season over. Great retrieve from Flick on both birds. I held them in my hand and I thought, yeah, if this is where it ends and we never get a shot at a gamble's quail in Arizona, it'll be all right. And sure enough, that's how it ended up. I hope your season ended up just as positively. We'll get right into Mark Fulmer from Sarasota Kennels right after these two brief announcements. The first from sageandbreaker.com. Gun care products crafted at the highest caliber. Sign up for their mailing list. You'll get first notice on all the um, new stuff that's coming down the pike and also the very rare sales that Fred Bohm has over there. Let me talk to you a little bit about one of my favorite products. Used the heck out of it this past season. It's called CLP. It's a little bottle. It's non-toxic. You spray it on. Clean, lube, protect, Talked about cleaning the first time around. This time, let's talk about how it lubricates. It coats and protects your bore and all the moving parts of your firearm. It's beyond kind of a standard gun oil because it improves heat dissipation. If you're shooting doubles or you're shooting an automatic shotgun, that keeps your gun cooler and functioning fully. Learn more about Sage and Breaker and their CLP at sageandbreaker.com. And the gun that brought those quail down was a pointer shotgun from LegacySports.com, the Acrius. It's available in a number of Cerakoted finishes, which not only look cool, but protect that gun from corrosion. But it's also available in a youth model. And you know how big I am on this whole idea of recruiting new hunters. The most important thing for success with a new hunter is gun fit. If you can get a gun with a shorter length of pull and a balanced uh, uh, swing from shorter barrels, all of a sudden things start to happen in the right way. Learn more about the youth model and all the other models of the Acrius shotgun at Pointer Shotguns at Legacy Sports dot com legacy sports dot com so good to have him back the guy knows his stuff and he has insights that a lot of people can really learn from and that's why i asked mark fulmer of sarah cetera kennels back on the show he's in aiken south carolina which kind of a hotbed for dog training now that i think about it mark welcome back to the upland nation podcast i'm glad to be here thank you and i'm glad you're here as well because i learned so much the last time around about puppy development in particular and uh, you know this time of year a lot of people are thinking about that i um, can count on uh, more than one hand the number of friends who've gotten young dogs this year already so we're going to focus a little bit on all of that but before we do any of that What's new at Sarasota Kennels? Well, my Patreon page is finally up. <laughs> it, it took quite a while. It was a, a much bigger undertaking than I expected. 
but the, the puppy section is up and available. I am working on outlines now to go through started dogs and finishing dogs. And as I get those outlines closer to finished, I will actually start putting up videos probably daily. Wow. Uh, excuse me. Not videos, but I will put up uh, written sections daily, and then I will go back through my video file and try to find two or three examples that I can add to each one of those. And uh, that will give us a good starting point if someone needs to send in a video or see something they have a question about, they'll be able to uh, offer questions. I'll be happy to answer it. So how does that all work? Where do we go, and, and what do we get when we go there? Okay, you would... Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and then backslash Sarah Setter, or you can simply do a search in the search box for Sarah Setter. Okay, and that's Sarah Setter with an H in the middle there. Exactly. Okay. But once you get to my site, uh, there are several different pricing structures. Basically, what Patreon is is a service that sells content for video creators and that sort of thing. And and literally anything under the sun from sailing a boat to knitting and everything in between is available there. Wow. Uh, uh, it's really a, a neat platform. And uh, I think it's going to expand a lot more than anyone can imagine over the next few years. Uh, it's going to surpass YouTube as a how to do it because you will be going to people that know what they're doing instead of people that are just offering their idea on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, you, you do get what you pay for. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic, and good luck on that. I've been um, uh, I've been working on some some similar stuff, and I know that it, you just don't do it overnight, so good luck. Um, you, you know, why don't you give us just a little bit of background on on your philosophy and why you started Sarah Setter Kennels? Because I, I think it's 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 important to everybody to understand the base before we start building on that foundation. Well, it all began with a uh, Irish Setter named Sarah that my brother bought for a girlfriend that couldn't keep the puppy, so she ended up coming back to the house, and I ended up taking care of her. That was in '75. Um, in 76, maybe 77, I sent her to a boarding kennel because she was in season. I couldn't keep her home, and I actually paid for someone to teach her obedience. At that point, uh, I had never formally trained anything, but all of my dogs, and I'd had a lot of dogs as a child, uh, did what I asked. But anyway, the dog went to the kennel. When I got her back, she had been jerked around on the choke chain so bad that I couldn't put her on a leash for weeks. She was scared to death of a leash. And uh, that began my search for other ways to train. Uh, I started looking for behavioral methods. or I, I didn't look for them, but I found them. And uh, that was the beginning of learning how to really train. And uh, there, um, she died of cancer at age six. I went out and Got a couple of field trial red setters because everybody had laughed at my Irish setter, who actually was a pretty good wild bird dog. Wow. And uh, put me on a decade of running trials uh, in the southeast and national bird hunters. And I ran four or five Irish setters or red setters and at least three English setters during my trial years. And uh, in 91, I decided to turn pro and go full time as a dog trainer. 
Yeah, you know, if anybody can get a long-haired, feathered tail, funny, tall, long-legged dog to do it, um, yeah, they probably ought to turn pro. And you've you've worked with some of the less common breeds out there. Is there some reason you stuck with those early on? Well, uh, I actually named the business, obviously, Sarah Setter. Yeah. The first one, so it it automatically brought setter people towards me. Mm. And and I started looking around, and there was no one in the southeast at that point that really trained setters other than Harold Ray. And, of course, he was private. He was working for Mr. Smith. So I just decided it was probably going to be a good marketing move. So that's the way I opened up, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. I've trained an awful lot of setters over the years. Would you take my wire hair if I send him the, your way? <laughs> I've trained a lot of wire hairs. Uh, okay. So he's even in the southeast. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I think I had four go through in the last year. Well, I'm glad to hear our influence is expanding, uh, but uh, I love those long-haired dogs as well, and, uh, and and obviously so do you. You know, you formulated a philosophy based on what I would consider a, a, a kind of a negative experience. Thank God your dog was rehabilitated a bit after that, but you, you've since, cha- you know, formulated a philosophy of training based on what you call positive and negative reinforcement. Now, negative reinforcement is different than punishment. And I, I think even I can figure that out, but why don't you explain the idea of the, you know, the left side and the right side of that equation? Okay, sure. Well, uh, first let's clarify positive reinforcement. Um, Positive reinforcement training is a progressive system of teaching any behavior. Um, an, an easy example for people to understand is teaching your dog to sit. Um, every time that dog's hindquarter goes down an inch, you click and treat. And what you do then, that becomes your baseline. The next time his rear end goes down, it has to go past that point. And that's when you click and treat. So it's a progressive system of training uh, and dogs very quickly grasp that they have to do a little more and they will offer more. And the neat thing about it is they're thinking and deciding to do it on for themselves. And that's when true learning takes place. They're, um, they are training themselves as many people say. Well, essentially, you know, and, and the, the flip side of positive reinforcement that people don't understand, they tend to think of it as treat training. Yeah. So if you a full behavior, I give him a treat. Uh, and when it doesn't happen, then they're left with nothing but punishment because they don't have a way to back up. Um, so quite a difference between treat training and training with positive reinforcement. Okay. So, um, I get the food thing. In fact, I just wrote something on that, uh, for my blog, but, uh, do you use anything besides the click and treat as a positive reinforcement? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I use my voice. Yeah. Um, and I use good, just a quick good, because like the clicker, it marks time better than, oh, you're such a good dog, Joe. And because uh, what happens when someone has a long string of praise crayons, the dog can do or think two or three different behaviors. So he doesn't understand what he's getting reinforced, reinforced with. So uh, that's the reason for a short, concise uh, reward tone. And you can use the tone. You can use your voice. Um, with field dogs, 
I do a lot of the early training with a clicker because mm-hmm. it's highly efficient. But as I'm finishing that clicker work, I actually start adding good with the clicker and eventually phase the clicker out. So when I get to the field, you know, you've got a remote. You may have a, a remote around your neck for a launcher. You've got a check cord in your hand maybe, and you just don't have enough hands to operate everything. So it's uh, nice to do the reinforcement. Good. I, I am so glad to hear that. That is one of the nexi, uh, the plural of nexus, I think is nexuses. Anyway, that is the the one question I have for everybody who, who uses a clicker, and that is at some point – the dog's going to be too far away to hear a clicker. Um, and you got to have something else in there. Now, uh, let me, this is, I want to tell you a little story, Mark. I, I was hunting in South Dakota a few years back and all the trainers slash handlers slash guides were women. And they all were working serious Deutsch Drautars. Um, and um, they all those dogs would go to the ends of the earth for their handler, owner, trainers. And one of the commonalities that all the trainers had was baby talk. Mm-hmm. You know, in general, they were very gushy and very positive and a oh, good boy, you know, but it was all up at that, that pitch, you know, high voiced stuff. Have you ever experienced anything in that regard uh, about uh, pitch, tone, uh, that sort of thing when it comes to success in reinforcing a dog's behavior? Uh, yeah, you know, you, it's very evident in puppies. Yeah, yeah. Women with their naturally higher voices, it's very easy for them to do it. Uh, men tend to get away from baby talking, whether it's to babies or to puppies uh, as the animal or person gets older um, you know the key is every time I say good it's a really quick upbeat sound and the dogs understand it yeah. uh, I tell you someone the other day I was at a trial and I watched and heard someone give the same command for four or five different behaviors and uh, <laughs> what the word was was whoa but I heard whoa 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 and whoop, 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 whoop was to turn the dog, or whoa was to stop him, and whoa was to be cautious. And I thought, how in the world could the dog understand all this? There you go. And basically, it's voice inflection. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I, I joke about it, but I say is that concise on understanding voice inflection requires you put an awful lot of time into it, and it makes it very hard to transfer that dog to someone else. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I used to, well, I still do use a few command words that are different than everybody else. And then the problem becomes when I want somebody to take my dog back to the truck or I leave him at the boarding kennel for a few days, uh, the dog doesn't know what the heck people are saying half the time because of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm leaning away from that and using the same words all the time. Um, but you know, there's, there's also that idea of uh, voice inflection, like you said, and you, you can, you can use any old word out of the dictionary probably. And if you use it consistently and you use it at the same tone, tone of voice, it would probably work just as good as whoa, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I mean, every dog out there understands foreign languages and nobody teaches them foreign languages. They don't understand English as far as speaking it, but uh, they all understand voice inflection. There you go. Yep. Yeah. I think about it. Uh, just watch National Geographic for a while, and you'll you'll hear wolves talking to each other, and they they don't know vowels from consonants. Sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, back to where we were. Yeah. When negative reinforcement, um, so many people don't understand the concept that negative reinforcement occurs before a behavior, to change a behavior before it happens. Uh, or if a behavior has started, negative reinforcement is there and it goes away when the behavior starts to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So many people want to use low-level punishment after the behavior, and they call it negative reinforcement. But the timing's all wrong. Uh, negative reinforcement occurs immediately before or during the behavior so that you less li- make that behavior less likely to occur in the future. Give me one good uh, practical example of that. Um, let's see. Let's say we've taught a dog to, uh, to whoa, stand still. And he's standing and he starts to pick up his foot. And if the collar goes on low before the foot reaches its peak, it will probably go back down in the same spot. Um, but if you do it after the step, you simply gave him light punishment for moving, uh, which will hopefully prevent the second step. But the key to keeping a dog steady, truly steady, is he never takes that first step. Yeah, I get it. And in fact, interestingly, if you are slow on the trigger, so to speak, and you don't hit the collar on low until he's got four feet on the ground again, all of a sudden he's being uh, discouraged from having four feet on the ground. So as always, timing is everything, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to be selfish for a moment here because our project this uh, training season is pretty much related to that, Mark. By the way, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. That's Mark Fulmer of Sarah Setter Kennels. Um, Flick is real strong, and I told a story earlier in the podcast about um, he was (laughs) steady on a double on Valley Quail. But I want that to happen every time, and I want Flick to pass his NAVDA utility test, which requires steadiness to wing, shot, and fall all the time. So um, take me through that last step. Now, he understands the word woe. He, you know, he'll slam on the brakes no matter where he is. But in the heat of the battle, the birds get up, two shots ring out. He sees that bird fall sometimes when I'm hunting. And, um, and I want him to make sure that he's waiting for me to release him. What, what are some of the things I might do in that regard based on what we've talked about? Well, instead of fixing him when he breaks, you go back to the very beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, all of my dogs learn to stand on the place board, uh, whether they're 12 weeks old or, you know, eight months old when they come in for training, uh, but they learn to stand on the place board. And while they're standing on that place board, they actually see me introduce pigeons. And uh, I'll do that depending on the dog, maybe 15 feet away. If I've got a dog that's got incredibly high drive and probably going to get off the place board, I'll actually back out 50 feet. Yeah. And, yeah. and what you're doing is you're reducing the amount of distraction by putting distance in there. Um, 
And when I first pull a pigeon out of my pocket, uh, I would literally pull it out and hold the body in one wing in the hand and let one wing, uh, and technically I flap it myself because I just flipped the bird my wrist a couple times so sure. that it put the bird away and immediately, good. And uh, if I have an assistant, I may have someone that's standing there click and treat. Uh, but most of the time, it's just my voice and, and good. Um, but it's because they've already learned to stand there. And the other part of standing there, my place boards are only eight inches tall. Basically, most of them are concrete blocks turned on the side to make a platform mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the training woods. And uh, what I actually have is a overhead line that goes up and over a tree limb. It could be over a, a uh, rafter if you're in a shed. Uh, shed work with pigeons is tough because pigeons want to fly up and land in the shed, which makes a whole nother <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing with you, not at you. I've been uh, there. <laughs> it's much better to be away from the shed. Um, but, you know, if that's all you got, that's what you got. So, uh, But anyway, um, I actually have a boat cleat, a homemade boat cleat. I have one but two on the side of an adjacent tree so that I can rapidly adjust the uh, the overhead lead. And the lead comes down to within maybe three feet of the dog. Yeah, and it's just to a parachute cord with a very lightweight snap on it. And once a dog steps up on place, and he's already learned the place command, I can send him from twenty feet away, and he hops on the place happily. But once he does that happily, then when you put him on place, you don't really have an expectation of him jumping off. Uh, essentially, that overhead uh, line that he can't feel when he's standing on the place board, uh, when he steps off, uh, it tightens up, and generally doesn't even pick his toes up off the ground on the front. It just holds his head up. And it's his decision to get back up there to find his comfort zone. And most dogs, doesn't take them long. If I have a dog that's really fired up and wants to run and swing, I'll be close so I can just grab the rope and keep him from swinging and hurting himself. And uh, sometimes I'll guide them up once or twice, but they all very quickly learn to step back up there on their own. Sure. Uh, And again, it's them making the decision to stand there instead of you picking them up and physically put them back up on a board or whatever someone else may be doing. Um, and, and that's what I love about the way I train. I always help the animal make his own decision uh, instead of relying on me for command. Because we, you got to face it. If you're bird hunting, 90% of the time, you're not going to be there with the dog when he points to birds. You're not mm-hmm. going to be there. To, so it's all got to be his decisions. Um, so that, that's what I'm after. But, uh, you know, I'll increase the level of distraction with the pigeons. I'll move in closer. Uh, I'll eventually, uh, within a day or two, hold them by their feet and let them flap freely. And uh, I'll start by maybe just two seconds of them flapping around, and then I'll immediately put the bird up against my back, uh, and that calms the bird. And then I praise the dog. And bird back out again. Um, and very quickly I can start bending over and going to the ground with that flapping bird until it gets on the, on the ground and it's flapping and kicking leaves or dust around a little bit. And once I can go to the ground a couple of times with that pigeon, uh, when I go to the ground, I will let it go behind me and the bird flies away. And all of a sudden the dog's standing there with a, a bird flying away. And, uh, and again, it's all praise, no punishment. And very quickly, 
dogs learn to stand there happily. And uh, I'm not looking for intense style. Uh, which yeah, yeah. What a lot of people are looking for when they put them up on a board uh, because the dog is scared to move or a barrel that's rocky. Um, they're sort of scaring that uh, hardness or firmness from the point into the dog. And, uh, and it works. There's no question about that. Um, I just want my dog to make his own decisions because I'm not always going to be there. Love it. But as, as soon as the dog is doing that well, and I can throw pigeons basically in his face and um, he watches them fly off, I will start walking him at heel uh, by release straps. And with the release straps, uh, he'll be walking at heel. I'll pop a bird up and uh, yeah, I'll actually have him in a suitcase leash. And if I need to, I can correct him but most of the time the dogs just freeze when a bird pops and after one or two birds i can walk out in front of them um a couple of more birds the next day i can walk out in front of them and i can actually introduce a blank gun not introduce but put it into the sequence because they've already gotten custom gunfire uh so eventually i get the, the gunfire the standing watching birds fall uh to become such an ingrained habit i don't have to worry about the dogs moving uh, they're always standing there waiting for me to come back and, and ask them to move on. That sounds uh, like a pretty good plan and definitely something I've, I've, I've actually dusted off my re, uh, my release traps uh, in the last day or two. So getting ready for that, got to replace the batteries. That'll be next on the agenda. <laughs> but I'm getting there. You know, so... Uh, so another idea on release traps. Um, I've actually tried to talk to manufacturers a couple of times over the years, but nobody ever wanted to listen. Um, everybody I've ever seen use a release trap sets it on the ground, bird pops straight up. Yeah, yeah. Um, excuse me. Um, I put all of my release traps on the sides. Uh, it's a more natural flight of a bird. Um, of course, you have to understand the wind and know which way it's coming because you don't want to burden the dog's face but you get a really natural flush that a dog sees and flies off you know how, how many of us let's take a vote out there have learned that the hard way i'm the same as you i prop them up so that they're they're actually in effect pointing away from the dog if you like you said if you can read the wind all of a sudden that bird is flushing away as if it were a wild bird and that really does help no doubt about yeah. it in, in fact, by the way, here's the one thing I learned in a whole bunch of training uh, days and then also in some uh, hunt tests and that sort of thing. Man, you want your dog, um, you know, when you're training your dog and you're pushing birds out of a, a planted birds out of a situation from under a bush or something like that, make sure you're pushing those birds away from the dog so that you don't run the risk of that bird flying right into the dog's face. Judges don't really cotton to that very much. Um, go ahead, Mark. I say neither do dogs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I know. Catch one. <laughs> oh, I had it happen recently, uh, and it was a big bird too. So, and unfortunately, it's no longer with us. 
So um, we're, we're barely getting warmed up around here. I want to talk puppies to a great degree when we get back from this quick break. Um, start thinking about some of the things that you see, some of the things that are common, some of the uh, you know rules to live by that we have uh, when we bring a new puppy into the home and we start bringing them along into their hunting career. Um, I've also got to cover our Upland Glossary. We got a survey of all of the dog injuries that took place this past season. That's all coming up. Mark Fulmer, stand by for just a moment while I make a couple brief announcements, and then we'll be back to carry on. That first message is from Happy Jack Incorporated. That's happyjackinc.com. You want to save yourself a trip to the vet? Well, I did that several times this year. I just had a bag full of Happy Jack products of various sorts. One of them that I'm starting to give Flick as he gets just a little bit more mature is the Flex Enhance Plus. It's basically what it what you think it is. Uh, if your dog is slowing down, they're not jumping in or jumping out of the kennel, for example, that sort of thing, it may not be fatigue. It might be arthritis. More common than you think, even dogs as young as one year old can get arthritis. So if you're worried about that sort of thing, pick up some Flex Enhance Plus from happyjackinc.com. It has creatine and glucosamine. I take those every day. Maybe it's time for your dog as well. Happyjackinc.com. You can find a dealer right there on the map or you can order it online. And one of the places Flick jumps in and out of a lot is his Roughland Kennel. Learn more about all their products at roughlandkennels.com. You know, they were the pioneers in roto-molded dog crates, performance dog crates. Everything they engineer into that is done for a reason. In addition to the crates in various sizes, colors, and configurations, I gave my accessories a workout this season. Everything from water storage and dispensing, gear storage, and of course, Flick's Kennel. Learn more about all their products and how they enhance your dog's safety and performance and yours too at roughlandkennels.com well welcome back to the upland nation podcast mark fulmer with sarah setter kennels mark yes what else is new in your life over there i know you've got you've done some seminars and that sort of thing are you yeah, uh, creating anything along those lines for us for this year? I'm going to do a, an adult dog seminar um, the weekend in May before Memorial Day. I think it's the third weekend. I haven't looked at a calendar lately, but uh, I'm, this is the first announcement to anyone that I'm uh-huh. thinking about doing this. Oh, great. So uh, if you want to learn more about that, we'll go to Sarah Setter kennels.com right right okay well i know you what would you cover in that thing just briefly oh i would talk just briefly about puppies and clicker training unless someone came in with a really young puppy um probably wouldn't spend more than an hour to hour and a half on understanding the concepts of clicker training with a puppy unless i had a lot of puppies um but from there we'll move into what I basically call my first month of training, uh, field obedience. 
And of course, that's the introduction to the e-collar, where the dog learns to come and call, um, learns to run and handle, stay at the front in the pocket, and he learns to kennel, learns to place, uh, starts learning to woe towards the end of that month. Um, and then as he goes into the second month, I will continue teaching the woe command, um, and I actually teach woe several different methods. Uh, I teach it with the suitcase lease. Um, I will teach it with the uh, collar around the waist. And also they learn it by stepping on the place board. Sure. And by training it from several different angles, basically, it, it makes them much more reliable. But um, once I get a dog that, that is running and handling naturally in the, uh, the training field, um, at the same time, we start the bird work with the place board and pigeons. And now let me qualify that. When a young dog comes in, the first thing I'm going to do is, is put it on free quail, put out five or six birds scattered over 15 acres, let it run and find them. And uh, if it doesn't have a lot of bird drive, we may do that three or four times a week for a couple of weeks to build bird drive. Um, you know, that's always the most important. So, uh, I assess the uh, desire of the dog to, to find birds. And once I see a dog with higher desire to find birds, he no longer needs to point a bird basically until he's almost finished. Um, everything else in between is pigeon work, learning to watch and stand and fly away and uh, introduction to gun, that sort of thing. You, you, um, you just hit on something that uh, I get this email once a month from somebody oh, i got a two-year-old dog and he do, he's not really motivated he doesn't cover a lot of ground he doesn't know what to do when he runs into a birds and 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 you ask a few follow-up questions to that and it turns out that those poor dogs haven't had any early introduction to birds of any sort whether it's dead frozen pigeons or live pigeons with their wings clipped or anything else in the yard or even in the field let alone wild birds of any sort how do you how do you first introduce a very young puppy to birds or do you well i introduce birds to puppies at eight weeks yeah um, and actually, let me back up. I actually feed my puppies fresh killed quail at six weeks old. Um, and that is the first solid food they get. Uh, I select all of my breeding bitches on their ability to produce milk. Uh, if I breed a dog once and she doesn't have a high quality milk production, she probably won't get bred again because that's exactly what nature would do. Uh, they would wean out those genes for animals not producing. Um, so as they go off a mother's milk, that's the same way nature teaches every animal in the world what they need to look for. They uh, drink mother's milk until mama brings back the, the quail or the rabbit or whatever she hunts back to the uh, nest, and she either regurgitates it or gives it to them whole, and they start chewing it up. And they are imprinted on what they need to look for for the rest of their lives. And, and the imprint is at the right time as they go off a of mother's milk. Yeah, so, so you're not confusing their palate, so to speak. I know that's just kind of a culinary term, but they, they get it. Yeah, exactly. You know, they already instinctively have a drive for birds. But when mama brings it back and gives it to them before they ever leave the nest, 
they come out of the nest looking for birds. Yeah. And the first time they smell a bird, it's like mealtime, man. Yeah. And because the puppy's eight weeks old, he's not agile enough to catch a bird, so the bird flies away. And the next time he finds it, he's cautious. And you know, all of my birds are put out free. I'm just uh, dizzy them a little bit and drop them down. And I'll generally put out seven or eight birds and walk a semicircle around a, a Johnny house, maybe 75, 100 yards away from the Johnny house. And the puppies repeatedly have bird contacts. So and, it, that, I'm loving this because it, it just makes, it rings so true with virtually every one of these complaints I get. Um, but there are a lot of folks who don't have a Johnny house or 15 acres in Aiken, South Carolina, or a whole bunch of birds of any sort. Uh, they might have one or two pigeons. Um, they maybe they're frozen for that matter. Is there any value in introducing dead birds and then live birds in a constrained way? And that's, would that help at all for those people? If I was going to use dead birds or frozen birds, it would only be for retrieving. Yeah. Never ask a dog to, the point of frozen oh no bird. no no but if they've never had a bird contact ever and they're eight weeks old or 10 weeks old or worse right they don't know what a bird is no absolutely not now um if someone has access to pigeons um it's very easy i have a, a four acre field uh adjacent to the kennel literally open the kennel gate and i'm in the field and the field is actually 900 feet long and about 200 feet wide but and that's the fence pasture but the nearest tree line on the uh, far side is 200 more feet away and then on the end the nearest tree line is probably 500 feet away so when you step out in the field it actually feels like it's 15 acres when it's truly only four mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it works for me in several ways um if I'm teaching a dog to run, I can let him run the fence lines, and he always goes to them because he's reaching for the edge, and the fence just sort of guides him around the edge. Um, but he's always looking at the horizon, which is outside of the fence, instead of running down a hedgerow. So he, he's always thinking bigger. He just can't get to it. Now, the other, probably the, the most valuable training asset I have here is this fence four-acre field for starting dogs. Um, I will literally go out with eight or 10 pigeons and, uh, and actually I'm doing something that Jim Marty did out in North Dakota and wrote about it 35, 40 years ago. Um, all you need is a, a game steward's bag and, you know, eight or 10 pigeons and simply go out and tease the dog a little bit, getting bold about the concept of a pigeon. Yeah. And pigeon slap, it actually intimidates some dogs. So you have to be yeah, careful. Yeah. But once you get them interested in the pigeon, you toss it and it flies away, and all of a sudden they're chasing pigeons. And I build up that desire to chase. If I have to, I throw the pigeon on the ground right in front of the dog, and they try to catch it, or they may catch it, and then I gently go in and try to get it away from them so that it can fly away. Um, I may lose one or two pigeons a year like that, and, you know, and I may go through 40 or 50 dogs. Uh, so, yeah, it's just one of those things. Yeah. I don't like losing any of the pigeons, but occasionally somebody's faster than the pigeon, or the pigeon's just stupid. Yeah. And hits the ground and sits there. So, 
Uh, it's to me though, that's, that's a hundred dollar feed bill over the life of a pigeon. Oh, uh, it is. I generally keep 75, 80 pigeons here. Yeah. Well, I would too. <laughs> yeah, I got them in two different houses, but once you get a dog that's strongly chasing pigeons, uh, depending on his level of fitness, uh, you let him chase till he's tired. If yeah. it takes six, or it takes eight, if it takes 20 eventually he will get tired and you know they figure out to come back to you because you're the source of the pigeons sure so as they're coming back all of a sudden i have a pigeon in my hand and they'll stop 15 20 feet away from me and while they stand there i'll let the pigeon flap and if they move pigeon flies away and they chase it again well pretty soon that puppy or dog will come back and basically at that point he's he's pointing me with the pigeon but same process. I'll start going down to the ground. I may get halfway to the ground. The dog moves. I let the pigeon go. Eventually, I can hold the pigeon all the way down on the ground. The oak stands. I let the bird go, and he's off chasing again. And I pretty much teach him not to chase pigeons right out there in the field. At the same time, <laughs> they're building bird desire. Uh, and it's nice, and it's easy. Nobody gets upset. You don't have to worry about catching a dog because you can't get away, you know, and that's the real strength of this fence field. Oh, I love it. Yeah. You know, there's dogs can't get away. So he's coming back. There's one thing plaguing me, Mark Fulmer of Sarah Setter Kennels, and that's the, 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 the touchdown, if you will, in this game. And that is at some point that bird needs to get shot. And you know, you know, you talk to people every day who say, yeah, it's time to start killing birds over my dog so that he can get his reward. Um, but whatever it's for, at some point, a dead bird or a wing clip bird or something is going to hit the ground while the dog is standing there. And that is to me, the, the, you know, the thing I'm, I'm working on most these days it, in how, how do we do that? whether it's in the field or on a check cord or in, in your fenced field, which I, I wish I could have, um, where do, where do we meet that need? Uh, I do that on the place board. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. Has restraint. Um, I will tie the wings up on a pigeon and, uh, for people that don't know, you cross the wing, uh, you raise the wings up over the back and you don't struggle with it cause you'll pull a muscle in the pigeon. Uh, back, but if you hold the pigeon properly, he'll he'll relax at some point, and the wings go up over his back, mm -hmm. cross him just below the first joint, and then you cross the wing again just below the second joint. Yeah, and, and the wings are mobilized, so that pigeon will he'll lay on the ground and he'll flop around. He he may move, he may actually get his balance and get up and start running off until he falls over again. But I use that to create that same scenario that's going to happen when you find birds. Sometimes they're going to run. Sometimes they're going to move. And the dog learns to stand still as long as that bird is moving in his presence mm -hmm. without jumping in on it. So so you're, you're relying on the fact that no matter – he's learned to be steady, if you will. That right. The, he's steady at every stage, whether the bird is in your hand, flying away, on the ground, running away, uh, or standing still it all goes back to that fundamental knowledge that he acquired on the place board. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. people used to call it yard work. But yeah. It's much more than yard work for most people. Yard work is pulling a dog around on the check cord a little bit and letting him point a bird. And when he jumps in, they flip him backwards. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, not a great way to learn. Of course, thousands of dogs have learned like that, but half of that thousand probably got cold at some point because they didn't like the training. Yeah, well, can you blame them? <laughs> or people started breeding dogs that were tougher and could take more. Yeah, yeah, and, and we've all seen that too. In fact, I just wrote a piece for Gundog Magazine on that subject, uh, it, it, among others, and breeds and breed breeding within the breeds. Um, let's let's go to an adult dog, and and you know we had our our seasons over. We think it was pretty cool in a lot of ways. We enjoyed the heck out of it. But there was one or two things we'd like to do to make our dog even better next season. When you talk to people about that sort of thing, they come to your seminars and they talk to you on Patreon, whatever it is, what are the most common, uh, I'll call upgrades in training that people want to uh, do with their, their mature dog? The thing that I have to do most with mature dogs is teach basics. Ah. Nobody builds a strong foundation because it's, so fired up about getting the dog on the bird and that's what all this stuff is around the place board it's teaching basics before you ever get out there uh, and whether it's responding to the collar or, or your voice or all the other things getting in a kennel you know i watch hundreds of people shove dogs in kennel put in the entire life of the dog instead of the dog willingly hopping in um I can say people just always it's not that they're taking shortcuts but they don't do enough for the basics you know that's yeah if you found it's not strong you don't have anything to build on so uh if we if we want our dog whatever it is we we might go back more than one step or two and and start from the beginning all over again sure and, and the nice thing is because you've already got a relationship with the dog and working it he'll come through it very quickly um, and because of that, he will become a much better dog. Uh, and I said, people, everybody wants to get to the, uh, to the meat and skip the potatoes. They just want to start hunting. And, uh, if you get all this basics done first, everything else is easy. Yeah. And we've all hunted with that guy, by the way, haven't we? <laughs> Maybe we are that guy. <laughs> I'd say every dog that comes in here that's over a year of age is in that category. Wow. <laughs> because, you know, they've already tried it themselves, and, uh, you know, he won't point and hold a bird. Well, what does he know? Well, he'll yeah. come when I call him sometimes. <laughs> he'll, yeah. whoa, sometimes. What is, what is your fundamental philosophy on uh, – uh, e-collars, you know, we've talked to, we, you've referred to them a few times and, and we, we, I always hear the word low when I talk to you about collars. Um, it, you use them obviously. And, and at least I know you use them on the neck and the, and the belly once in a while. Uh, but generally speaking, what's your approach to, um, use of an e-collar? Well, that goes back to what I call the, the first month of field obedience. Mm -hmm. That is the introduction to the collar. Yeah. And, I still rely on the three-step introduction uh, with both the clicker and the collar. And again, it's foundations. Uh, it teaches the animal how to respond to the clicker. It teaches the animal how to respond to the collar. Uh, if you're going to use the collar for punishment, none of that matters because you're just going to pop him when he does something wrong. And he may or may not do that again, or he may do it out of your sight. But uh, 
he's not really learning. He's just stopping behavior. Yeah, you know, that's the slowest way to learn. But what I do, uh, the three-step introduction, I spend an entire week teaching the dog to handle if it's a bird dog. And in that process, you know, he'll eventually come in and I'll pet him. And he starts learning to come in, but I don't necessarily use the collar to make him come until he's already learned to handle. Uh, and he learns to stay in that pocket that's you know, 45 degrees left and right of center, so that 90 degree pocket to your front. And by spending an entire week teaching that, uh, he learns to stay in front of you. And by the end of the week, I'm never touching the collar. I mean, I turn and he comes around and he's in front of me. And I turn again, he comes around and he's in front of me. When he does that well in the open field, then I'll go out into my training woods. And I may have to use the collar a few times to help him turn, but all of a sudden I'm walking through the woods and he's hunting all types of cover and he still comes around and stays in front of me. And when that's taught early, it becomes very consistent with the dog and it, it takes all the yelling and screaming out of looking for your dog because he, he knows where to be. Um, the week after that, I actually teach the kennel command. And by the end of the week, I can send a dog from 30 feet away into a kennel. And it, it's not that he needs to learn the kennel command. It's the ability to leave your side to solve a problem with the collar instead of coming to you. We've all seen the dogs that as soon as you get hit with a collar, probably with punishment level, he comes to you and gets under your feet and just sort of quit. Yeah. Well, he learns to solve the problem by going away from you. You created balance. Because the week before, he essentially was, was coming towards you when you changed direction. Uh, the following week, we teach him to go away from us. And then the third week, I teach the stationary command, either sit or woe, depending on the breed. And in three weeks, you've got a dog that comes to you, goes away from you, and will be still. And if you think about it, that controls about 99% of his motion in some fashion. And it was all very simple to learn. But what he does is he generalizes how to respond to the collar to solve a problem. And once you do the three-step introduction properly, you can essentially use the collar to teach anything with low-level stimulation. Uh, and we'll start talking about teaching with the collar. Um, again, we're talking about negative reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And I actually teach kennel command in the beginning up on a bench, on my uh, training bench. And all I have to do is walk a dog up and down it until he's willing to walk on it and let him step in the kennel once or twice. And if he won't step in the kennel, I'll just gently pick up his hindquarters and guide him in. And as soon as he'll step in that kennel willingly one time, when he comes out, a low one or a low two goes off. And as soon as I get him back in, he goes off. And if he steps out again, he goes back on. I may go up to medium, and eventually I get him back in. And in two days, he has learned to go to the kennel every time he feels stimulation up on that bench. Love it. And, and then when I move him to the ground, I just simply start backing away from the kennel as he becomes more efficient. And I never say kennel until he does it properly. Um, you know, everybody wants to command a dog to do things. Well, the poor dog doesn't understand English. No more than you or I understand Russian or Chinese or whatever. 
so you teach the behavior first. When it starts to become reliable, then you can overlay the command or keyword with it. I, I, I know last time we talked, we talked a lot about that critical early period in puppy brain development. I, I, I do want to just recap that before we go. You, sure. even, you even have a name for it, SPEND, Sarah Setter's Progressive Early Natural Development. In a nutshell, just remind us why it's so important that we work with a dog basically uh, as early as possible in that dog's life? Well, it's all related to brain development. Uh, people will think about when a puppy is born, eyes are closed, ears are closed. Uh, the only thing that works in his sensory perception really is his nose, and that's so that he can find his mother and find milk. Uh, as he grows, and as his brain grows, the eyes will open, uh, the ears will actually open and start working, and puppy starts to learn to, to move around, starts to learn to walk, and that's all related to the growth of the brain. Um, many years ago, uh, Larry Mueller wrote an article. This was back in the 80s, maybe oh. early 80s, and I saved it at the time, but I haven't been able to find it for years, but I know it somewhere. Uh, but anyway, he, he wrote an article that some researcher had come up with, and they said that a puppy's brain at seven weeks old was 55% in size in relation to its body weight as compared to an adult dog. By 12 weeks, the brain was 95% in size in relation to its body weight. So there's a period of rapid brain growth. And uh, for anyone that's followed early child development, uh, we have learned that when that brain is rapidly growing, uh, essentially it's plastic. Like children can learn almost any language before the age of six with no problem. Uh, and it's all because that brain is still growing. Puppies are the same way. They can learn a tremendous amount while the brain is growing. And just like the language comes natural for a child, these behaviors become natural for the puppy uh, when they learn that young. And uh, by getting them out in the field every day, they get to experience it. They get to see birds. And it truly becomes a part of their psyche. Uh, it, it makes them better than they could ever be without it. And again, like it's all related to brain growth. As that brain grows, there are more capabilities. And, and actually what's happening, you're helping the brain to form more neurons and synapses with clicker training. But clicker training is basically hot or cold. Make a decision. And it gets rewarded for the good decisions, gets nothing for the poor decisions. And uh <laughs> Because it's a learning method for the puppies that they enjoy, uh, it just engages engages the brain incredibly. Uh, you get tremendous eye contact. Um, the puppy wanting to work for you, and that stays until, you know, like most puppies, four or five months of age, when they get that first independent streak, um, and you know, then you move on to more traditional training. Yeah, that's when the fun begins. You know, it's so true. And, and I, I, I would I would second your emotion on Larry Mueller's article and Larry Mueller's thinking in general. He does talk about that, by the way, in his book, too. So if you can't find that article again, which I, I treasured as well. Well, I've um, got it. I don't remember ever reading across it there. I don't think he's covered in as much detail there, but he does talk about brain development. But that, that is absolutely right. If you think about something that's growing or whether, hey, you know, weightlifting. Um, 
it's all the same. You're as the organ expands in size and those cells are being created for the first time, you have the chance to imprint into those cells in a way, like you said, the neurons and synapses that, that are just being created. You get first crack at those. It, it makes all the sense in the world. Oh yeah. Well, I'll tell you, we haven't spoken of it here, but it all gets back to epigenetics. Uh, I'm in a couple of Facebook groups that talk about breeding bird dogs and, uh, it's been a fairly hot conversation topic for quite a while with us. Um, what happens is the more you do it, the more the body's genes aim themselves in that direction. And after breeding two or three generations, that's how basically we get dogs at point. Um, but you can change a dog's epigenetic structure by doing different things with two or three generations. Yeah. Um, a book that I read recently was talking about a village in Brazil where literally as soon as they started walking, they had a soccer ball. And <laughs> the village produces the best soccer players in the world. I can't tell you how many out of that village are playing for you know, world pro teams, but they're everywhere. And they all come out of this one village, and it's because the entire village has done this forever. So it's sort of in their genes to do it. I love it. Uh, we'll close on that because I want you to learn more about Mark and his philosophy and uh, maybe even get involved in some of his training activities in one way or another uh, remotely or go to the seminar. Sarah Setter Kennels.com is where you learn more about Mark Fulmer and his ideas see some of the videos and learn more about dog development, especially puppies. Mark, it's always fun to talk with you. So glad you could join us on the Upland Nation podcast. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. And we've got a lot more to cover here. In fact, uh, a new feature, uh, our Upland Nation glossary is first on the agenda. And then I'll talk about all the things that, um, that we uh, went through with our dogs when it comes to injured reserve lists. So stick around right after these two messages. The first from Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food. You know, I know in this day and age when we're buying everything online and it's arriving in one of those big brown trucks or something like that, stuff happens. Well, let me just give you an example of how it's supposed to be taken care of. Uh, Flick's latest bag of momentum formula from drtims.com, that's D-R-T-I-M-S.com, by the way, arrived with a hole in the box and a hole in the bag. So I fired off a quick note. Hey, Tim, by the way, this happened. These guys shipped it. He says, no problem. Two days later, I've already got a fresh bag. Two days later. And in this time of supply chain problems, isn't that a breath of fresh air? You know that, why don't we, yeah, I'm not even going to talk about Amazon Prime. But anyway, customer service is as important to Dr. Tim as it is to all the other excellent suppliers that we have out there. Learn more, get 30% off your first order using the code Upland Nation, free delivery and re-delivery if you need it at drtims.com. And uh, among other things, you might be looking at uh, your shooting and whether or not a new shotgun will help next year. Of course it will. 
By the way, your wife just gave you permission to buy another one. And if you're shopping, Mid Valley Clays and Shooting School might be the place to go. Midvalleyclays.com is where you take a look at their inventory of shotguns, including a large number of Browning A5s, if that's your passion. Hey, big news. Lots of interesting enhancements, performance and otherwise, on the new Browning A5 New features, camo treatments, speed load plus, nickel Teflon coating, stock shims and back boring technology are some of the new features that you might want to take a look at in your new A5 from midvalleyclays.com. And I promised you a new feature. Uh, we are going beyond and above, as it were, uh, from the Upland Nation Glossary. You know, that was one of the first things I did when I was putting my book together. More news on that, by the way, in a week or two. But um, nobody had ever really worked as hard as I thought they should on a, you know, basically a dictionary of all the terms that are kind of terms of art amongst people who are passionate about bird dogs and bird hunting. So with the help of a lot of you out there over the course of a few years, uh, we assembled a pretty darn comprehensive list of terms. And I'm just going to touch on those once in a while over the next few weeks so that if you're reading or talking to somebody and they say, for example, I got an all-age dog that won't do this, or I got an all-age dog that does this all the time, you'll understand that according to the American Kennel Club, and uh, of course they're governing a lot of the field trials out there, not all of them, but all-age is a term that's used in other organizations as well. All-age means any dog can enter that particular field trial stake and try to win it young dog adolescent dog adult dog it doesn't matter all age stakes are open to any dog just so happens most of the dogs that win are more mature more experienced those are the big runners running for the big money all age dogs and also from our, um, let's see, this from the Upland Nation Insights newsletter. I ask a question every week and uh, you folks answer it. If you don't have the newsletter, please subscribe at findbirdhuntingspots.com. I'm wiping my forehead and saying the same thing that 66% of you said. Whew. My dog got through the season without a single injury. Most common injuries, feet, pads, nails, 14% of you, body, head, 13% of you, eyes, 6%. All right, I'm knocking wood. We got lucky this year, but luck is made by you and your dog. So preventive medicine in one form or another might help you next year good luck if if you had a dog that was injured i hope uh, i hope he or she is recovering completely right now 
That'll do it here at the Upland Nation podcast. Very enjoyable and informative discussion with Mark Fulmer of SarahSetterKennels.com. Learn more right there. And then go to the Facebook, no, no, Patreon page for him. Patreon.com slash SarahSetter is where you learn more there. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave me a review wherever you get your podcast feed. And then let's talk anytime, day or night, at the Wing Shooting USA and Upland Nation Facebook pages. Thanks for leaving a review, Joel FP. I'll leave you with this. Uh, male or female, you can probably relate. Bonnie Schachter wrote it down, and I will quote her now. I once decided not to date a guy because he wasn't excited to meet my dog. I understand, Bonnie. Luckily, I'm not on the dating uh, scene anymore and probably never will be, but that's a good thing. Love you, honey. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Linden. Talk to you next week.